That was a great, great question of the day. Good morning. I'm going to start talking and eventually people will sit down. Oh, look at this lighting. Oh, there's, there's me. Um, this is nice lighting. This is my first time here, obviously, and this is, I am loving it. I'm loving this building, uh, loving this space. Uh, my name is Paul Stiver. I am uh, on staff at Hope. I'm, I'm an elder at Hope Lower Town. That's where I spend most of my time, most of our time. Uh, my wife, Allison's here with me. This is a picture of us. Uh, I guess you could probably tell where and when this was taken. This is uh, at the Grand Canyon, uh, and it was taken during the 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 rise of COVID, the heat of COVID? What do you, I don't know how we talk about it. Uh, this was during, this was in July. Uh, this actually, I had graduated LDI, the Leadership uh, Development Institute at downtown, finished my third year. So this was our LDI, post LDI trip. I'd never been to the Grand Canyon. So that was great. Allison's here. She uh, works in uh, fundraising at the U of M. And actually, since I've never told you guys this, we, we have a bun in the oven. So Allison's gonna be due with our first kid in uh, probably, hopefully Halloween. We're kind of hoping Halloween, but so we're very excited about that. Uh, I, like I said, I come from, we come from Hope Lower Town. Uh, technically, in this whole structure, you guys are our little brother or sister. I guess I never thought about, you just, you're, I, I guess I just said brother. Anyway, so we're over in St. Paul at Hope Lower Town. We've been there almost now, getting closer to four years. Uh, and so we love it over there, um, serving and, and, and um, really just enjoy the neighborhood and enjoy the people there. We, we like you, have made it through um, the 18 months of 2020. This, I, I did want to stop and say, though, like when, so like you guys are heights and so you're like, we're, we're siblings. And uh, I think about you guys and we think about you guys. And, and I just was thinking how encouraging it is to know um, to see Drew and Kelly and, and everybody leading through this time, um, but just to, that that God is faithful. You guys are here. We made it. I mean, we're not through everything yet, but but man, and to make it through the 18 months of 2020 and come out on the other side as a church, uh, it's really encouraging to me. And it's been fun to kind of see from a sidebar and watch you guys go. Drew told me how long you guys met online and it made me want to pull my hair out. But man, that's impressive and really cool. And so um, praise God for that. Uh, this week, we are continuing on in the parables, the Uncovering Good News. We, uh, it's week three of this sermon series that we're doing here for the summer. And I'm trying to look at these, these kind of parables or these stories of Jesus that, what are we uncovering or what is he really getting at in these? Last week, Drew talked about the parable of the generous landowner. Uh, and this week, I'm going to look at, we're going to look at what is good news for lost sheep? And so I'd, I'll start with the getting lost story. This is mine. So uh, this is a McDonald's. It's not the McDonald's in my hometown, but I grew up in a small town in Wisconsin. And when I was a kid, I would go for walks with my mom and I would ride my bike. And she would, I would, I always wanted to go to McDonald's because I was a kid. And uh, she would, so I would ride my bike. And one day I rode my bike way ahead of her walk, like at least a mile. And I actually crossed very dangerous, busy streets um, to get to the other side where McDonald's was because my hope was that when she caught up to me, she would be like, you're right, we should get McDonald's. She did not feel that way. She was not appreciative of the fact that I crossed those streets and that I had disappeared from her, but she was relieved. And today we're going to look at um, 
We're going to actually look at how God feels about lost people uh, and what that actually says about who he is and, and about how we can respond to him. So we're looking at the parable of the lost sheep. It's in Luke chapter 15, New Testament, one of the gospels. And so uh, I'm just going to read it. We're going to unpack it. I've got quite a few things to talk about, but I'm also going to try and keep this timely. So if I'm going long, just yell at me. That's fine. I can take it. Um, so Luke 15, chapter uh, verses 1 through 7, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And so this is a, uh, just a very short parable. It actually is followed up by the parable of the lost coin, which follows a similar format, but I'm, I'm not going into that one this week. And when we read the parables, there's a few things that can help us. One is just kind of identifying the parties involved or the players. Who's, who's he describing or who's being described with this? Another one is looking for, typically, generally, parables will have one main point, something really that Jesus wants people to hear and clearly understand. And then third, there, uh, and this might help us understand them, is some of the cultural implications. Or what's the backdrop? Why is shepherd and sheep such a relevant um, part of this story that Jesus tells. So let's get into the players first. And the first people we have we see are, are the Pharisees and the scribes. And so Pharisees, when we think about them, and, and I am uh, not a biblical scholar, I, but I can use Google. So I don't feel like you could never know this information. It's findable. Um, but the Pharisees were kind of the best of the best. As far as as good as humans could be in relation to God and keeping the law and, and being holy and upright and clean, the Pharisees were the cream of the crop. And then they were also rulers and shepherds over Israel. And they were trying to guide the people toward holiness in the midst of Roman occupation and in the midst of a culture that was challenging to their faith. And so they, we sometimes always paint them in a negative light. They were generally trying to do their best. However, they were misguided in their read of the story. And similarly, the scribes, the scribes are just scribes. They just write. They wrote the law. They knew the law by heart, oftentimes able to recite even maybe the whole Psalms. Um, so we've got these people that, that really know the Old Testament and that really want people to be holy and are kind of shepherding the people in that way. And then we've got the tax collectors and sinners. In this culture, tax collectors were despised um, because they were Jewish people who were working with the Romans to collect taxes from their brothers. So oftentimes they would have been outcasts. They would have been considered um, traitors, and they wouldn't have been very loved. They would have actually been shunned. Uh, if any of you have started watching The Chosen, we see the way Matthew, who was a tax collector that Jesus calls as a disciple, was treated by people and how he kind of had to hide and uh, live kind of an undercover life so that people didn't know what he did. And then we have these sinners. And in this context, this really meant um, irreligious people people who weren't really interested in following after God and, and living in his ways and what the Pharisees were teaching. Uh, and because of that, they were considered unholy and unclean. They're kind of outside of who God's people are. And so we look at this group, we actually, we take the Pharisees and scribes, we kind of have the best of the best. 
And then we have this group and we have kind of the worst of the worst. So we have these people that are righteous, these people that are unrighteous. And Jesus is going to tell us in this story, he's just a teacher. So we don't have a lot here. He's just teaching. He's telling through story. And then we have a shepherd and lost sheep. And this is an agrarian or agricultural society, very common to have shepherds and sheep. Uh, However, the shepherds were kind of, again, considered more of that outcast group, more of that unclean group. When you think about what they're doing, they're shepherding sheep, they're outside the city, they're uh, with animals all the time, which would be considered unclean. Uh, And so this is another group that is kind of on the fringes, but Jesus is actually going to make them or make the shepherd the center of his story. So we go back to this parable. And now we understand we've got these tax collectors and sinners, the worst of the worst, gathering around. The best of the best are wondering why Jesus is allowing them to draw near. They're actually, the charge they're making, or they're muttering in this case, is this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. He's drawing near to these unclean, these outcasts, these rebellious and immoral people. And they can't understand it. And in fact, the the fact we know that they're upset about him drawing near is because it says he welcomes them and eats with them. And when we think about even in our culture, who do you share your table with? It's really people you're close to, typically not people that you wouldn't like or wouldn't want to draw near to. But in this culture, it was especially intimate to eat with someone. People would lean in. I tried, They said I could move around, so I'm going to move around a little bit. One person, the chief guest, would recline into the host. And then the, the closer you were to being an honorable person, the closer you got to sit next to the chief guest and to the host and you'd get the best food and then the food would get passed around. And so if you're far away, you're not going to get very good food, um, nor are you considered an honored guest. So you would actually be, and we have stories in the Bible of like Peter looking to John and John is nestled up in Jesus's side because he's that close. That's how they ate their meals. They were nestled in with each other. And they can't understand why is Jesus drawing near to these people that we don't want to be near. We don't want them to touch us. And so Jesus does something very interesting here. He's going to make the hero of the story, the person that when we read it, and certainly when the Pharisees and scribes hear the story, they wanted to insert themselves as the hero of the story. He's going to make the hero of the story a shepherd, someone who would be considered unclean, an outcast. And one thing that's interesting that he does here is he's going to grab onto this shepherd theme that's actually a really big theme throughout the Bible. So I think he's doing something particular here. And so we're going to look at just quite a few. I'm going to bombard with the Bible for a second. I'm using big B words there. Um, and uh, we're going to look at some of the Old Testament prophets. And when we think about the storyline of the Bible, we've got kind of the creation story. And then um, uh, the Israelites are in Egypt, delivered out of Egypt, wandering in the wilderness, They come into covenant with God, an agreement with God. God will do these things for them. They will respond in kind by obeying him. And they make that pact. And then he promises to bring them into the promised land, which he does. But their disobedience constantly expelling them as a consequence of their sin. And in that, we get the prophets. And these prophets are are people that really their role was to call Israel back to the covenant. Hey, We made this agreement with God. He would be our God. We said we'd obey him. You're not living in those ways. And so they would often pronounce judgment and they would bring words of also of hope though. They would, a lot of the prophets we see at the end of the stories of of each of the books of the prophets, we'll see these points forward to a glorious future where God, despite his people's sin, is gonna reconcile them to himself. And so we get these prophets 
Uh, and starting, we're going to kind of chart a few of them on this shepherd theme. And first is Isaiah chapter 40, where it says, See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms, and he carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. This, this chapter in Isaiah is called the comfort chapter. The first words of it are, comfort, comfort my people. And he, God's talking about how he's going to gather his people. And when he does, he uses the language saying, I'm a shepherd. I'm like a shepherd and I'm going to hold. Look at this language. I'm going to carry them close. I'm going to gently lead them. Continuing on in this, we go to Jeremiah and this kind of new covenant is coming. God's promising it in this chapter. And he says, they will come with weeping, the people of Israel. They will pray as I bring them back. I will lead them beside streams of water on a level path where they will not stumble because I am Israel's father and Ephraim, my firstborn son. Hear the word of the Lord, you nations. Proclaim it in distant coastlands. He who scattered Israel will gather them and will watch over his flock like a shepherd for the Lord will deliver Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. So God's making this promise. He's saying, I'm like a father. I'm gonna be like a shepherd. I'm gonna redeem. I'm gonna buy back my people. I'm gonna protect them. I'm gonna deliver them. But then we get further in the story and we go to Ezekiel chapter 34 and, and going through LDI, one of the opportunities I got to do is take a character class Drew actually teaches on, on ministerial character. And we spent a lot of time looking at this chapter because in Ezekiel 34, Israel's shepherds, their rulers and leaders have a word of judgment pronounced on them. It says, Ezekiel here says, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but do you, you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill, they were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched or looked for them. And God's actually in, the, in this chapter, he's going to repeat this charge again to the, the rulers of Israel. He's saying, you're self-seeking shepherds. You have not strengthened, you've not healed, you haven't bound up, you haven't gone to look for, you haven't searched for my stray sheep. And he's going to repeat this charge, he's going to bring it against them again. But then he's going to go further as we continue on in the chapter. I'm skipping around a little bit here because it's a very long chapter, but we've got to see some of these things. He says, for this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. So he's saying the thing that you failed to do, the thing that you refused to do in searching after my sheep, I will search for my sheep. 
I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. And it continues, I will save my flock and they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. I will, tell, I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. So all of this healing, rulers of Israel, that you should have been doing, all of this seeking of the loss that you should have been doing, I am going to do, and I'm going to do it in a way where I'm going to actually set up my servant David, and he's going to shepherd and rule over them. But now there is one thing, if you're a Bible nerd like me, you're like, wait a minute. David, I think he's earlier in the book. Actually, he's 500 years earlier. So when we look at this, we're like, wait a minute. How is David, is he coming back from the dead? Who is this servant David that is going to be prince among the people and bring them back and rule over them? And so we get to uh, the last one we're going to consider at this point. And, and from, from Micah, minor prophet, later in the story of the Bible and later in the Old Testament, in Micah chapter 5, God is speaking and he says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. So God's kind of unraveling more and more of the shepherd theme. And when we get to Micah chapter 5, we get this promise in verse 3. When she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites, that God is actually going to raise up from among the Israelites someone to be that ruler, someone who will stand and shepherd in the strength of the Lord. So God's pointing forward to a day when this one ruler is going to come. He's going to be an Israelite, but he's also going to stand in the strength of the Lord. There's, who is this person? But before we answer that, we've got to go back to another time. We get back to our parable. I want to consider what Jesus is saying now. If we even think about that shepherd theme, and even this idea of rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep, that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Jesus is saying that drawing near to the tax collectors and sinners is the work that the shepherds of Israel should be doing if they really understand who God is. And he's the one that's come to do it. He's the ruler that's going to come and shepherd the people. Uh, Drew turned me on to this commentary by Michelle Barnawal, and it's been really cool. It's so cool. She's so great. Uh, the book is called Surprised by the Parables, Growing in Grace. Uh, and she says this. She says, To both Jesus and the Pharisees, the sinners and tax collectors are indeed lost. Jesus wants to extend grace, but the religious leader's response is to shun them. They might have done this in order to avoid the impression of giving approval to their conduct. The expectation would have been to draw firm boundaries between the righteous and the unrighteous to uphold the law. But Jesus breaks social convention by associating with and eating with them. 
Jesus, care, Jesus sees people as created in the image of God, which means they are of great value. He sees their worth and responds to it. Jesus does not expect people to be sinless like he is. Instead, he is willing to meet them where they are. That is what grace is about. It lifts people from where they are rather than crushing them for not attaining perfection. It provides dignity and hope. It gives life. So when Jesus is telling the story to the parables, he's saying, you don't understand the graceful heart of your heavenly father. That when you look at the tax collectors and sinners, you see people to shun, but your heavenly father sees people to draw near to. And actually, if we kind of could take and extrapolate this to any other religion or worldview. When we think about this concept of grace, of, of God lifting people from where they are instead of crushing us for being sinners, every other worldview, every other religion, God says, find me. By your good works, earn your way to me and you'll be holy, you'll be acceptable in my sight. But in Christianity, God seeks us, which is why we've got to be careful of reading this parable as moralists. Oops, let's go back one. And by moralist, I just mean we fall, and we're, we're so good at this. This is how our brains are wired. We fall into good-bad binary of thinking. I'm a good person. They're a bad person. That's a moralistic way of thinking. I just need to try harder, work harder, get better, and I will be improved. That's a moralistic way of thinking. And we can read parables that way. If we read this parable moralistically, we'll, we'll look at, we'll say, the problem's my behavior. The Bible is a tool I can use to help me change my behavior that I'll just rely on my power, my strategy, and I'll be able to change. But we see then a minimizing of our need for God because we're focused on self. And then lastly, moralism comes naturally because we want to be getting to work. We kinda, I want to have control over my spiritual journey. I want to get it figured out. So if we read this parable moralistically, we might come up with headlines like five ways to stop muttering against God. What are the things I got to do to just stop muttering against God? Or maybe positively spun five ways to have more joy today. And now joy is not bad, and we should consider ways to have more joy, but where are we looking for the strength to have that joy? Or we could come down harsh. Who do you share meals with? Who sits at your table? Or you should seek people. Make friends with people who are different. Don't look down on others. And we come out of this feeling exhausted because I can't do this. We also have this license for comparison we do. We take these, we set these rules up, right? Like Michelle Barnawal says of, of righteous conduct and unrighteous conduct. We set these things up and say, man, I, I sure seek people better than they do. I, when's the last time they had their neighbors over? I, I'm really good at that. So I look down or we look, we look down on ourselves, right? Gosh, I complain a lot, but there's that one, that one guy. He always has joy. I, I should be more like him. So we set these categories up of good and bad, and we want to live by them, but we can't read parables that way. We can't think about the gospel that way. I mean, thinking of another time when the Pharisees are grumbling here, this is back in Luke chapter 5. It says, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him, and Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. 
If we look at verse 31 and the concept of grace, that God has favor on undeserving sinners, we have to throw moralistic categories of good and bad out the window. Because he says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And if we set up those good, bad categories, we think in those ways, we easily put ourselves in the righteous category and not see ourselves for who we are. Because the reality is, when we look at the parable of the lost sheep, we're the lost sheep. We're all sinners. This is what the Bible's telling us. That we're people who are unworthy of salvation. That none of us are righteous. Only Jesus is. What the Pharisees miss when they say, Jesus, you're drawing near to sinners, they don't realize that he's also drawing near to them. That they're also sinners who need grace. So grace helps us, destroys those moralistic categories for us because it reminds us we're all in the bad category. We're all unrighteous and in need of a savior. Which brings us to one more. I got one more Old Testament shepherd theme. This is from Zechariah. This is very near to the end of the Old Testament. In Zechariah, it says, Awake sword against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. So if we're thinking about how is God going to seek lost sheep, especially if that's all of us, and then we get this word that the shepherd is going to be struck and the sheep will be scattered. How does that apply? Jesus is actually going to take it. In Mark 14, he's going to predict his death and resurrection. He's saying, you all, we will all fall away. Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. So after all of that Old Testament prophecy, Jesus takes this verse and claims and says, in me, all of the shepherd theme finds fulfillment. That I was the one coming out of my brothers, born of the woman who was going to rule over Israel. That I'm the one that all of the shepherd theme was pointing. When God said he's going to send David, he was talking about me. Jesus is claiming that for himself. But he's also saying that he is the shepherd to be struck. And that's when we get John chapter 10. Jesus is going to take up this mantle and claim. Starting in verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. When we think about God and who he is revealed to be in the person of Jesus, we see something remarkable in the story. That the good shepherd doesn't just come looking for us. He comes to die for us. And that grace here is that he's going to give us life through his death. So if we look at then the main takeaway from this parable, it's this. 
It is the joy of heaven to seek and save the lost. It is to the delight of God's very heart to have mercy on the unclean, the outcast, the rebellious, and the immoral who repent. He seeks them and saves them through the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. The people who see themselves as sick, as riddled with sin, as in need of Jesus, are the very people he's drawing near to. And he delights to draw near to. Some of you might get this reference. It's a little bit older. Anybody, like Unsolved Mysteries, did you watch that? I, I loved Unsolved Mysteries. I got no hands, so this reference is going to just swing and miss. No, it's, it'll still work. I, loved, I love Unsolved Mysteries. Robert Stack, he's like wearing a trench coat. He's always walking through like cemeteries and stuff. Anyway, the show was like, they'd look at unexplained, paranormal, missing persons cases, all kinds of random stuff. But one of the things they always did is reunions. They always have these reunions where it's like these two kids, they grew up, um, someone got sick, they ended up in foster care, and then they were split up. And they, they haven't seen their brother or sister in 60 years It's sometimes. It's unreal how long. And you hear them say, like, I, if, I, if I could just find my brother again. It's been so long. I haven't seen my brother. I, I just want to know he's okay. I just want to know he's alive. And then the, the Unsolved Mysteries, they, like, call in. They call, like, I, hey, I was watching the show. I saw you on there. I know that guy. And they get him in connection, and then they meet. And Unsolved Mysteries, they film them meeting. Now you can imagine not having seen your sibling for 40, 50, 60 years. You grew up with them, and then you've been separated with them. All of the anxiety, all the angst, wondering, are they okay? What has become of their life? And you watch these people, they get out of the door, and, oh, that's an Anderson. And they just run to them, and they hug and embrace. They're sobbing. Because they, and then they say, I feel like I finally have a family. I feel like I finally know who I am. I finally belong. When we look at the parable of the lost sheep, we see the storyline of the scriptures. We see that God's heart has always been for reunion with his people. He wants his people back with him and he does it through the work of the good shepherd. And I just, I got to hit on this too. At the end of the parable, he says, there's joy before the angels in heaven. It's not talking about the angel's joy. It's talking about God's joy. That God is in his wheelhouse when he gets to have mercy on sinners. When sinners come to him and repent, it brings him fullness of joy. And that's how we see it described as we conclude the shepherd theme here. First Peter says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That the way this reconciliation, the way this reunion that God has so desired happens is through the blood of his son, Jesus. But grace doesn't even stop there. Because in the story, it says the sheep is carried home on the shoulders of the shepherd. And when we think about grace, that applies to us. We don't carry ourselves on our own shoulders. But kind of the idea is a little bit, I don't know how you do it, but I, we try. That's what moralism tries to get us to do. That's what legalism tries to get us to do. I'll just, I'll pick myself up by my own bootstraps. But grace says 
Christ has sought you. He's purchased you by his blood. He's risen and he's carrying you home. So then we can read this parable gospelistically. It's a terrible word that I made up, but we're going to use it. Where I see the problem is sin, not just my behavior. And the Bible is going to tell me about my rescuer, my redeemer. And now I don't have to do this in my power. I actually get to rely on the Spirit's power and God's word to change me. This, instead of minimizing my need for God by elevating my ability to do something, I'm maximizing my need for God. I'm not focused on me. I'm focused on Jesus. And I'm compelled not to get to work, but to believe in his finished work. So when we look at this parable now, we see Jesus welcomes us to his table. He doesn't ask us to clean ourselves up first. He comes and seeks us when we're unclean. And he rejoices to save us and carry out the Father's plan that God's mercy is a seeking mercy. The mercy compels us to get out there and that he's carrying us home. And then lastly, that the joy of salvation overflows and invites others to the party. This is the coolest part of this parable. From a book by uh, R. Kent Hughes, Luke, that you may know the truth, he's, he says, Jesus was saying, as the parables turn out, that the shepherd and the woman, the woman who lost the coin, together reveal his heart as he searches for the lost. His shepherd's compassion for lost souls and the immense value he places on lost souls. The great Jewish New Testament scholar, C.G. Montefiore, said these parables were revolutionary because while the rabbis agreed that God would welcome a repentant sinner, the idea that God seeks sinners was a new insight. Maybe for you that's a new concept. Maybe for you that's a forgotten concept. God seeks sinners. That's the good news uncovered. This is, if you guys are familiar, this is Hope West, uh, stock image that I grabbed and I circled where I was. Many years back, when I heard this parable. At the time I was an atheist and uh, just a horrible person. And I was trying to change my life constantly. I just want to fix who I am. I don't like me. And I was sitting in that pew. With I was ready to give up. All hope was lost. I was so tired of me and being unable to change. And I was sitting there thinking, God could never forgive a sinner like me. That I burned all bridges with him. And I heard the parable of the lost sheep and I finally realized I could actually be forgiven. That it was actually God's joy for me to repent that day. And so I did. I actually, I was a baptism Sunday. I wrote in my little moleskin notebook, which I can't find the page. I want to find it so bad and frame it. But I wrote in there, today I give my life to Jesus Christ. And my life forever changed. Because God finally enabled me to see I was sick. And I needed a savior. I wasn't righteous. I needed the great physician. But the idea that God seeks sinners blew my mind and drew me in. So if we apply this parable gospelistically, we're compelled to think about ourselves in a grace-filled way. That I don't need to constantly evaluate myself in good, bad categories, but I can remember the one who has had mercy on me. 
that I can be someone who rejoices in God, especially as I see him more clearly and myself more clearly. That I can be someone who lays down my life for others and I can allow grace to reorient my relationships, our relationships, where I'm not constantly evaluating relationships on what people do for me and how they serve me or how they make me look, but rather who they are and how I can love them. And then lastly, I can let the seeking mercy of God flow through us, through, through me, through us. That we actually have a God who is in the business of seeking people out. I think you guys use the word here, overflow. That this is the overflow. When we think about how good grace is, that God has sought us, we can't help but tell other people, you, you don't know about this guy. This God who seeks sinners and actually dies for them. Uh, lastly, th- yesterday was Juneteenth, uh, just became a, a federal holiday, a national holiday. Uh, and Juneteenth is a celebration, it's a Freedom Day, Emancipation Day. It's a celebration of the end of slavery in the United States. It actually happened a couple years after the Emancip- Emancipation Proclamation, uh, when uh, they couldn't get the news, uh, for, for some reason they couldn't get the news down to Texas, and then they didn't have the troops to enforce this rule of the end of slavery. So by the time the news got down and they heard the good news of their liberation, there was joy, there was jubilation and shock. And Juneteenth was started as a, as a remembrance, as a holiday for people in the African-American community where they would gather, they would pray, they would reassure each other to continue the freedom struggle. They would reunite and see who's still alive, who's still together, who's surviving. And then one of the things that was really cool in my research about this is is food became central in this. And particularly the barbecue pit. And the barbecue pit for people was a way that they could cook the meals that their ancestors who had gone before them and been liberated before them had eaten. And they could share in the aromas that their same ancestors smelled, share in the spirit of it. And now we've seen recently that uh, Juneteenth is becoming more and more recognized because a party is better with more people. It just is. And it was really encouraging to me to learn about this Juneteenth tradition because that's kind of what church is. That's what we're doing. We're looking back when we gather around this good news of Jesus and his grace for us. When we bask in the gospel together, we're actually kind of similarly sharing in the spirit of those tax collectors and sinners who knew they were sick and needed to draw near to a savior. And we get to remind one another that we have a God who delights to seek and save the lost, which includes every one of us. And then we get to pass out invitations to the gospel party. If it's the joy of heaven... If it's God's joy when sinners repent, man, I want to get in on telling him, telling other people about this good news. So as we apply this, as we think in gospel reflection, just a few things. Just first of all, do you believe that it's God's joy to save you? I know that was a shocking concept to me that not only did I not burn bridges with God, he built them to me. Is that you today? Could you be needing to put your faith in Jesus today? Secondly, are you letting Christ carry you on his shoulders? Are, are you living by grace? Or are you trying to muscle your way to heaven? 
Where are you trying to carry? What are you trying to carry on your shoulders that you can give to Jesus? What burden can you lay at his feet? And lastly, where can you show God seeking mercy to others this week? I'm going to pray and invite Colin back up as we close. God, we just thank you so much for this good news that the parable of the lost sheep is an area we can uncover good news that no matter what we think about who you are, we have to trust what you've revealed that in your son, you're saying I've sent the shepherd who's not only come to seek sinners, but to die for them so that I can have reunion with the unclean and the immoral and the outcast. God, we praise you that your heart rejoices to save sinners. And we thank you that we've been invited into that story. Would you help us as we go forward this week to be people who put your mercy on display, but also people who just bask in the good news that you love us and you gave yourself for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.